This is Digital Marketing Fastlane. This podcast will show you how to build, launch, grow, and scale a widely successful online business. Listen to real conversations with proven practical strategies and success stories. You're going to learn how to generate more traffic, more sales, more profit, and customer lifetime value for your online store. Coming to you from the online marketing experts at Boy Media, here's your host, Kevin Urrutia. My name is Kevin here. I'm from New York, so I grew up in New York City, specifically Long Island, and then I went to college in upstate New York. And basically, once I went to upstate New York, at this time in my life, I was like, what, 17 or 18? I was really interested in programming. I wanted to do computer science because I was really interested at this time in building stuff, and I thought computer science or programming was going to be the way for me to do that. By this time, I was already kind of building websites, like HTML was a big thing for me. I was like playing a lot of video games. And I was like, whoa, this is so cool. I love building these video games. I like how they're made. And that's what made me interested in programming because of that concept of building stuff digitally. And the reason why I wanted to do something digitally was because growing up, my dad would take us to construction and he would make us do construction work on the roof, masonry, like woodwork, staining, painting. My dad was a carpenter. When we were like 15 or 16, he would make us go every single day after nights and weekends. And he would pretty much tell me, my brother, if you guys aren't studying, you guys need to come with me to work because we need to make money, like side jobs. And I knew instantly that this is not what I wanted to do. So I was like, I got to do something that's computer related because I want to be home all the time and not working on construction and breaking my back. So that's kind of what pushed me to do programming and sort of like this online stuff because I just didn't like doing construction. So I went to college at Binghamton, did computer science under Professor Head, who was like our program director. She was great. Really here that's when I started doing more, more of my own, like at least for me, my own journey of building products. I started this website called like Monday.me, kind of like a Yahoo Answers for just college students. I built that. It didn't go anywhere, but I had fun building it. I was also competing in a lot of these like hackathons. I'm not sure if people do them now. You would get together on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and you would make a team. You would find yourself a designer. You'd find yourself a marketer. You'd find yourself a programmer. And you would then think of an idea and within 48 or 72 hours, build a product or company essentially, and then pitch it to people in the competition. And in this competition, you would have VCs, you would have other marketers, or you would have like other founders and then basically competition, right? So if you won, you get a prize in college. I was doing a lot of this and I thought it was like so fun, just like building an idea. We were in the startup weekend in Syracuse, which is upstate New York. And we built this thing called go party starter. It was myself, my roommate from San Francisco, Adam, and this guy named Andrew Farah, Andrew. He had like a web development company and now he raised like $30 million from like Andrews and Horowitz, which is like a top VC firm for his new company. We were competing in a competitions together back in like 10, 20, 12 years ago, which is pretty funny. So I kind of was always like building stuff for me. And in college, I started a web development agency called One Tiny Bit. We built iPhone apps and Ruby on Rails apps. At this time, it was me, myself and Wilson. And the way we got jobs was that I would just go on Craigslist and I would look for people looking for web designers or app developers, and I would just email them. So I did that for a long time. And eventually what I did was I just wrote a Ruby program that essentially would scrape Craigslist. And then every time I would detect these keywords that I knew I wanted to target, like iPhone apps, Android apps, I would then have it automatically email under my uchair.kevin Gmail account, kind of like prospecting for leads. And that's how I got a lot of clients. It was crazy to think that was like a thing that we did because we got so busy that I hired someone to work for me in college who was also like a student in high school in Long Island, uh, whose name is Justin. 
And uh, it's funny because I paid him like what, 15 bucks an hour. And now he works at Facebook, super smart guy. But it was weird. Just, I was like 20 hiring somebody. And at this time, you don't really think about it. I kind of learned a lot about like client management in college, just because we had all these clients myself. And at least for me, it was interesting at this time because I never thought about it, but we were always building all these apps and websites, but we never really kind of learned how like they were going to bring it to market. At least for me at that time, I was really big into if you build it, they will come type of mentality where like you just have the great product. You don't have to worry about marketing, but that wasn't kind of right. Essentially, as I became older and I went to San Francisco, I, I learned that. That's sort of my college life. And then during this time, I still always wanted to go to San Francisco. That was like the dream going to SF, going to California, because that's where all the tech companies were. And the reason why I believed in this was because I would read all these articles on TechCrunch, Tech News, Hacker News was really big. I used to love reading that every day. And I was like, I got to go to San Francisco. Basically, after four years of college, I kept applying for jobs. I got a ton of job offers. I went, to, I got one in like Denver, Colorado to do web programming. I got one in, in Connecticut at ESPN too. And that was great. But I always tell people like, I didn't want to take these jobs, at least for me. One, it wasn't in California where I wanted to go. And two, when I was interviewing at these companies, the interviews, at least for me personally, they were too easy. I basically felt that, oh, wow, this interview was not challenging at all. I didn't feel like I even said anything remotely close to what I think I knew. And they gave me a job offer. I was like, I don't think I'm going to learn anything. So for me at this time in my life, I was like, what, 21? I was not optimizing for money. I was really optimizing for learning and getting smarter and getting better. And that's kind of where I want to really work for go to a job where I felt like the interview was tough. That made me be like, oh shit, I don't know what I'm talking about and work there because I knew that would be much better for me. And that's when I got the job offer for mint.com out in Mountain View. And there, my boss, his name is Shion. He was like a JavaScript developer who created his own like JavaScript programming language or like a library essentially. And then I was like, oh, wow, I would love to work for him because this guy knows JavaScript like in and out. I want to know what he knows. I want him to teach me everything there is to know about this because if you make a library, you got to know the language really well. And so for me, that's when I took the job offer in uh, California. And remember at this time, I've never went to California once. I barely even visited it. Really right after college, after one month of graduating, I moved to California without knowing anybody because this is like the dream and this is what I wanted to do. Mint.com was great. It was my dream. Like I wanted to live there. When I was in Mountain View, it was great to work there, but I was also living in San Francisco at that time. So if you're thinking about it, it's kind of like living in New York City and working out in Long Island. So it's kind of like a reverse commute. It kind of sucked. Honestly, it's like, it's basically like two hours each way commuting. And I was like, oh my God, this shit sucks. Like I hated it. Like it was fun for a little bit, but my commute was this. It was from my apartment to the Caltrain. I would walk 15 minutes from the Caltrain. It would be like an hour and a half ride. From the Caltrain, it would be to another 10 minute walk to the shuttle to take me to work. And that was like a process. And you guys can imagine, uh, yes, when you have a commute, it's like you need to time everything at the right time or else you're going to be late to whatever thing you're doing. And I just did not want to do that. So basically, I worked that mint for about six to seven months. And part of it was the commute, but also part of it was because when I got there within a month, the boss that I told you guys that I wanted to work with, he quit to go start another company. So that was kind of like a blow. Then I got another manager. She was a nice person, but she was just, for me, it was another manager. Remember at this time I was like 21, 22, very like naive. I've, I've made tons of mistakes, but for me, I was like, wow, the person that I wanted to work for left and that kind of demotivated me. But at the same time, Mint was going through this transition from 
a startup to corporate. So at that time I joined, they just got acquired by Intuit, which is TurboTax. And the corporate structure was changing. At least for me, some things that didn't resonate well with me was when I think we had a project manager or product manager at the time, and we were sort of planning for sprints. And he was telling us that, yes, we work nine to five, which is like a typical workday. But when you're working at these companies, really, when you're planning your sprints or how you're doing product development, you need to be planning for at least you're going to work three hours a day. And I was just like, whoa, that's crazy. We have working nine to five, which is eight hours. But yet, basically, they're saying five hours of a day is us doing nothing at work. And that's how we planned our sprints. And that's how we planned product releases. Not the lifestyle I want. And the reason why I say this is because my roommate, the one that I was mentioning earlier, he was working at a startup and he was working like eight to 10 every day, working nights and weekends. And for me, I was like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I want to be working like that. I want to be doing that because that's why I came here. I didn't come here to just work three hours a day and just relax. This is boring for me. I didn't sacrifice all this stuff to do nothing. So then within six months, I quit and was like, I got to go to a startup. And that's when I told my roommate, hey, I really like what your company is doing. I want to be working those hours that you guys are doing. I took a pay cut and I went to work for a startup and I was there for about two and a half years. And that's when I was like, whoa, this is everything I wanted. We're always working. Everybody's kind of trying to figure it out. We don't know what's going to work or not. And this is like the Silicon Valley. Kind of, if you watch a show, it's kind of like what it is. Like you just like hang out all day. You work all day. You hang out with your coworkers all day. When I was in San Francisco, I was always from New York. So whenever I talked about doing a startup or starting a company, at least for people in New York, it was always weird. And that's how I felt at college. When people would tell you, oh, you want to do an idea? They would be like, oh no, like why don't you just work somewhere for two or three years and then go do your own thing. And if you guys remember earlier, I was just kind of mentioning when I wanted to quit Mint, I knew I wanted to quit within two months. When you like something, you don't like something, you kind of know pretty quickly and you give it a shot. Within two months, I knew I wanted to quit. And I was telling my friends, I want to quit this company. It sucks. And a lot of them were like, hey, just give it two years. And I was just, whoa, like two years of this thing that I don't like. That's not how I operate. And then I quit. Yes, I like to get advice, but I think like anybody, you guys know when you guys ask for advice or an opinion, it's, you're kind of trying to see what they say, but you already kind of know what your choice is or, or what you want to do. I always thought about, I cannot just be here for two years. I want to be, I want to go and do what I want to do. And then great opportunity came. So anyways, in San Francisco, I kind of felt like that where the people around me were the people that I was looking for and needed around me. When I was in New York, I told me I want to do a startup. Everybody's like, no, that's like, why would you do a startup? It's so risky. And for me, I always thought the opposite. I thought like working for a company is risky because you can get fired anytime. I thought doing your own thing is not risky because you can control the outcome. If you want to get more customers, you know what to do. You want to get more leads, you know what to do, or at least you know the pathway, right? Whereas a company, you can be doing everything perfectly, right? And then your boss or your manager can just fire you for no reason. You don't know how to change that outcome. So for me, a startup, I thought this is the ultimate path of doing what I want to do and really controlling my destiny. And that's how I've always thought about it is I can do whatever I want and control my destiny. I will never be confused as to why things didn't work. And if it didn't work, it's probably because I didn't figure it out. But next time I will and be it's maybe because I didn't work hard enough. And if I didn't work hard enough, okay, let me go reevaluate that and figure out what happened, what went wrong or what made me lazy. So that's why I've always wanted to kind of do a startup. Those are still the thoughts I had in me and San Francisco living there really reaffirmed that for me because everybody there was doing a startup. You would walk down the street, people were talking about the latest startups, the latest magazines, the latest venture capitals funding that people received. It was everything I wanted and it really made me even better to build more stuff. And even in San Francisco, while I was still working full time nights and weekends, I was still working on apps and web stuff in California. I was making something every two, three weeks and no one saw what it was, 
but at least for me, it was building that muscle of just building things and trying to figure out how do you make like a, a e-commerce checkout? How do you make a website? How do you like do this thing with JavaScript and Google maps, like a tinkering of things. And that's kind of like next time you build a website, you say, I want to do a user login. I want to do like a password reset. How do you log in with Twitter? How do you log in with Facebook? Like all this stuff. The first time you do it, you kind of don't know how to do it. But then your next website, you're like, oh yeah, I have that code from two projects ago. Let me go just copy and paste it. And then now I can log in with Twitter. So then you just get better. I call this kind of like a stair step approach. It's like the first step is always really hard because you don't know what to do. The next step, a little bit better. And then you sort of start climbing up this little sort of ladder. You get to the second floor and it gets a little bit easier every time. It's always going to be tough, but then the next time you know what to do and you sort of have that in the back of your memory and your back of your mind and you don't need to remember it, but then you see something. It's like, I remember I had that bug before that had that issue before. This is how I fixed it. Right. So that's the way I think about it. Anyway. So in San Francisco, what really ended up happening was that I was building all this stuff and I was like kind of wondering, I'm building all this stuff. How come I'm not getting any customers? And then that's when I started really thinking about marketing. That's when I started getting into learning at least about marketing. And, and the first thing I learned SEO and like affiliate marketing for affiliate marketing, I was kind of looking into how are people making money online that are traveling the world. That was my first thought I had. And then I Googled it and I learned people say, oh, you got to do affiliate marketing, which is marketing arbitrage. Someone has like an app download. They'll pay you 50 cents for download. If you can get them a download under 50 cents, they'll pay you the difference, right? So if you would somehow figure out a way to get downloads for 10 cents, you will make 40 cents. It's like arbitrage, right? And really that's kind of like my first foray into marketing. I remember learning a lot of this stuff. SEO was a big one. Like Black Hat SEO was big. I remember going to forums like Stack That Money. Back then it was a really, really good forum. It pretty much like broke down case studies how how people were making thousands of dollars. And I think for anybody listening or even watching this, when you hear that stuff, it's kind of like, oh, is that true? And oh, this sounds too good to be true. But if you read it and you take action and you do it, maybe you won't make a thousand dollars a day or 10,000, like these guys are saying, but you'll make 10 to $20. And then that 10 to $20 just gives you insights. Oh, this is possible. And I think with anything, once you sort of do it yourself, you see what's possible. I like doing it myself because then it sort of builds that muscle. Kind of when someone tells you, Hey, this tastes good. And you're just like, Oh, okay. But once you taste it, you're just, Oh, this does taste good. And it's so different when someone tells you versus you doing it. And like with anything in life, I think the biggest thing is the fear that it's not going to work. And then that sort of paralyzes you. But for me, I'm just like, all right, let me go give it a shot. And with anything in life, people are just like, Oh, just try it out. And even for me, when I'm looking at marketing, People were like, oh, try 50 bucks a day on this campaign. And people were just like, oh my God, $50 a day. That's so much money. But you spend $50 a day eating dinner. But this thing that can potentially make you money, you don't want to try it. It's like a weird justification of things. For me, I'm just like, oh, let me try it. it. Didn't work. Okay, let me move on. That fear is not there for me. I just want to try it out and see. And then me, myself, know it's going to work because reading is one thing, but doing it and believing it is two different things. So stack the money was really good for me there. It really taught me a lot about mindset. I think that's the biggest thing about entrepreneurship is the mindset, doing the things like executing on it. And at least for me, I was reading those articles and case studies on that website. And I was like, this guy's not smarter than me. I could do this too. Why is he doing it and not me? And that's kind of how I always thought too. And then I learned more about Facebook ads, Google ads, SEO. And at this time I was still in California. And eventually after four years of being SF, I wanted to come back home. So then I moved back to New York and then I started my cleaning company. The reason why I started a cleaning company is because I was working at this company in San Francisco called Zarly. And we were kind of like an Angie's list or a Craigslist. That's more like a premium for these local services. And 
when I was there, I was building a lot of the checkout systems, the checkout flows, a lot of that stuff with the designers and with like the other engineers there. And really what we saw was that these sort of cleaning companies had a lot of demand essentially. But what was happening was that on the platform, one or two people that was fulfilling the services and basically once they got filled, they could never take more customers. That idea kind of like resonated with me and I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Why can't somebody make like an Uber of like these sort of like maids, kind of like an Uber-esque. And that's kind of like where that my idea came from. I want to make like an Uber for a cleaning company where it's like on-demand cleaning and you have all these like maids working for you and then someone requests a cleaning. So that's kind of how I started the company Maid Sellers. It was that idea. And quickly I learned that maid service isn't like Uber. Uber, you need like a ride two, three times a day potentially. Whereas a cleaning, you only need like maybe once or twice a month. Uber works because the demand is so high every single day from the same customer. Whereas cleaning, it's maybe one, like I said before, once every two weeks or once every month. So we quickly realized that this Uber-ish style wasn't going to work. And we just switched traditionally to how cleaning companies were run. But we then realized what was good about the, the model that we were trying to do before was that we had online pricing and flat rate pricing. So for people maybe that haven't booked the cleaning, how cleaning companies were run before, this is like five, six years ago, was that you would call a cleaning company, they would come to your house, and then they give you a quote. So basically, if you think about that process, you have a customer service rep, you have to now schedule a call with this person and figure out a time that works for both of you. You have to pay your estimator from their apartment or from your office to go to the person's house, give a quote. If the quote goes well, okay, great, we'll do the job. If the quote goes bad, you just wasted a resource and that's just a waste of your time. What we said what to do was like, hey, let's just give flat rate pricing based on a number that we think is right. So at least for us, we said, if your square footage is this between this side and this side, it's going to be this price. If it's this size and this side, it's going to be this price. And we just made it so you can book online. So now you don't need this estimator going out there to measure your home and potentially rejecting you where someone sees a price online and they're going to buy yes or no. Kind of a traditional e-commerce where you see a product and you buy it. Think about it before it would be like, you see a product and then potentially you'd be like, let me go send my demonstrator to your house and see if you want this like widget. If you want it, great. Here's the price. If you don't, okay, we're going to go back home. That's ridiculous. It's really bad. I'm not sure why cleaning companies were, were done like that before, but it makes sense because obviously some homes are bigger, some homes are smaller, but if you think about it, 90% of the homes are pretty similar and it's at 10%. For that 10% that you're sort of trying to make a little bit more money, you're killing the experience from 90% of the customers and you're adding so much overhead to your business. That's not worth it. So for us, it's like, let's just make that 90% really quick and seamless and streamline our operations. And then that's how we kind of grew made company. We grew that company. Now we're in Chicago, we're in Boston. And then we also acquired three other cleaning companies as well to keep growing the business. And then basically what happened after two years or so of running the cleaning company, I really wanted to do something else. And that's when I started going into e-commerce. And that's when I started doing my first e-commerce company, which is called Montum Outdoor Gear. If the website, if you guys want to go, it's just montumlife.com. And we sell outdoor gear and trekking poles. And the reason why that company started was because my friend Wilson, he had a, a hammock company. Also, by the way, Wilson was like my best friend in college and my best friend in, in California. And he also lived with me in San Francisco. I always tell people it's always great to have other entrepreneurial friends where you can freely share ideas or freely think about things. So Wilson would always tell me what he was working on. And then I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. Oh, I kind of want to do this. And then he basically helped me figure out what product to sell, how to market it, how to get it on Amazon. And he also helped me figure out what supplier to get in China. And now Montum, we saw the number one trekking pole. We're number one on Wirecutter. We're number one on New York Times. We beat Black Diamond and Lucky, which is our two biggest competitors. We've gone to tons of retail stores. We're in a bunch of stores, local stores around the US as well. 
And for at least for me, I've been to China three to four times to talk to my suppliers. This is why I love entrepreneurship. All the stuff I just mentioned, I would have never given the chance to if I was just a regular employee. I was able to do this because it's my company. I said, I want to go do this. I want to go go to China. I want to go cold call mom and pop shops and try to get my products in there. I want to do B2B sales. I want to go to this convention and try to get more customers this way. So that's why I love entrepreneurship. It's like the ultimate game to go do whatever you want and expand your knowledge and expand your experiences. But this time I was really like, what, 27 too. I wanted to do more stuff. I learned a lot from Antem. I learned how to source product, how to get customers. This is where I kind of learned Facebook ads and Google ads because we had to do it. We're from made sellers. I was doing a lot of SEO there. We grew organically. So this is a new channel for me to learn. That's kind of why I wanted to do e-commerce because I heard e-commerce is competitive. I was like, oh, if it's competitive, that means this is a great skill set that someone potentially would want to learn. And I always like markets that are competitive because that shows that there's demand. It's similar to like home cleaning. Home cleaning is super competitive, but that's great because it shows you there's demand and that shows you you have to be the best of the best to compete and get customers. So that's why I really like markets that are competitive because it really, really improves yourself and it just proves like how do you get customers. So that's the way I think about it. Then after that, I wanted to do like a subscription box company because I saw BarkBox and I was like, oh, BarkBox is kind of cool. They're also based in New York City. And I was like, I'm going to do a BarkBox competitor. And then that's when I started Dog Subscription Box. And I did this company for about three months and completely like just didn't do well. I, then I knew like this beauty blogger and I wanted to start off like an eyelashes company or I think, yeah, eyelashes company because she had, she had a big beauty following. And then I started contacting a lot of like eyelash companies in Indonesia because that's where a lot of them are made. And we invested like $10,000 in like samples, boxes. And eventually, like we both got so busy that we're just like, let's just put the company down the drain and just like shut it down. And for me, it was, yeah, $10,000 sucks. But I just knew that I didn't have the time because at this time, I was also working in my, another e-commerce company called Chester. Chester's a luggage company. If you, the website's called ChesterTravels.com. And here we're working on a custom mold, custom design. And here we're, we wanted the luggage to compete with Samsung and Toomey. Chester is doing much better now. We're doing about $2 million a year pre-COVID, obviously. And then that's kind of where my time was learned more about branding. I learned a lot of influencer marketing. If you look at Chester's Instagram right now, we do a lot of influencer marketing. And that's because for me, I wanted to do something new. Like I was doing SEO, I was doing Facebook, Google. I want to see, okay, what's hot right now? People are saying influencer is hot. Let me go try this with this brand. And I think that's why I like building stuff is because it allows me to try different things that maybe one company that I have this makes sense, right? For the cleaning company, no one's going to really post about getting their home cleaning because no one wants to know, tell people that they're dirty. It's like just a thing. No one wants to say that, right? So for luggage, everybody wants to tell people that they're traveling. Everybody loves traveling. So that's why it worked really well. And of course, I think this is also very important for people listening or watching. It's every channel might not work for the one type of business you're doing. So you might read a case study. You might read an article about how this thing is working well for you because that business, it makes sense. And I tell people, just don't get discouraged. Just try it. And if it doesn't work, okay, great. But next time you go for a company, next time you do your next company, give it a shot again and take the learnings from that failure and see how you can make it better. Maybe for this company, it won't work. So anyways, after that, I started Boy Media and Boy Media came out of me still wanting to build things, but at the same time, realizing that what I really loved doing was marketing and learning new marketing tactics and marketing skills. And I was like, Hey, like I can't build all these companies, but I would love to help other founders and entrepreneurs help them grow their business. And that's where Roy Media came out. And to Roy Media, we do a lot of Facebook ads, Google ads, advertorials, copywriting, landing pages. And right now the team's about 30, 40 people. So that's kind of like me in a nutshell. Sorry. A lot of stuff. Any questions guys? What's been uh, the most successful platform for advertising? Have you found uh, Facebook, Instagram, what, what's worked the best for you? 
at least for me, Facebook and Instagram is really big. I think Instagram out of both, out of all the platforms right now, Instagram is still the best right now. It's cheapest. Everybody's on there all the time. People still get confused that Facebook and Instagram are the same company. So they use Instagram more than Facebook now. So yeah, I think Instagram is great. So mobile, mobile is probably the biggest thing. So if you're doing a new website or an app, it's gotta be mobile first. Almost 90% of the traffic that we run to on Facebook is mobile. So you need to be at least designing and thinking about mobile first. Desktop is so secondary unless you're like B2B, right? For example, for Voy Media, most of our traffic is through desktop because people want a big screen to see like, hey, I'm gonna invest this much of money into advertising. What company should I work for? I wanna see their full portfolio. But if you're thinking about a widget or like a product, mobile, everybody's gonna be on the phone looking. So just think about kind of like what product or service you're selling and that can sort of help you. And does your company help people? Let's say you're doing YouTube ads. Does Boy Media buy the help? You know, you pay them, you, you know, someone pays you and then you buy the ads or it doesn't really work that way. Or what's, what's your relationship to the ad buy? That's a good question. So at least for how we do things here is you as a partner, like you, Steve, you have your own ad account, your own Facebook account, your own Instagram account, your own Google ads account, which is like for your YouTube ads. And then we join in essentially as a partner to the account. And then we manage the campaigns under your account. One, you as a client, you pay for your own ads with your own credit card. We don't ever take that money. You only pay us the management fee. And the other way that's also helpful is because let's say a year, two years from now, you're like, Hey guys, I'm going to take this in house. You still have all that previous data. So no matter if anybody listening, watching, whenever you guys are with an agency, I always tell people, make sure that you own all these assets because you never know six months from now, a year from now, you will say, Hey, I don't want to work with you guys anymore. You want to make sure that you have all the data that you can look back and use, or in case you want to sell your company, you want to make sure that you have this stuff because the other acquirer is going to be looking for this stuff because if they want to keep doing Facebook ads, they don't want to start all over. They want to say, Hey, no, I want your ad account because I want to see what you're doing before, because clearly if something's working, I want to keep running that. So that's the way you should be thinking about it. And roughly what is the fee from Voy? What, what do you, it's a monthly fee and what kind of number are we talking about? For us, our minimum to work with us is 4,500 a month. And that's, that's how much it costs to work with us. I tell people all the time, like you need to be spending at least anywhere between 10 to 20 K a month in ad spend to work with us. It needs to make sense because at our fee, if you're spending a thousand dollars a month, I tell people all the time, take that thousand dollars a month and use it yourself to learn the platform, see what works, take a course, and then go to an agency because one, I always tell founders, it's always great for you guys to know how the platform works, what doesn't work. And for you guys to understand how things are performing or not performing because it makes it a better relationship with a partner because kind of going back to what we said before, seeing is believing. If you know that you put a thousand dollars in and you only got 200 and you know that stuff that you have is good, maybe like the platform isn't good for Facebook ads or maybe my creatives aren't bad, but at least you kind of know what's going on or not versus, Hey, you've never done Facebook ads before. You give an agency 10,000 and they don't give you any money. What's going to happen. It's one, you're going to say, Hey, it, my product or website doesn't suck. It's that you guys suck, right? I tell people like, you need to spend your own money to figure out, is it my product that sucks or is the platform that sucks, right? Or something's really good, right? So they need to be thinking about it because I think a lot of people go to agencies as the first way, but I think they should go after they've tried it and validated the market. Because if you can't make it work, then there's no way that an agency can make it work because you know the product the best, you know how to market it, you know how to sell it. And if you can't do that, then I don't know why you're selling a product. If you can't even explain to people, why would they even want to buy it? Kevin, I got a like question on spending time and money on organic reach versus ads. My personal experience is it's much better to put time and money into the organic side. The ads seem very complicated. I get a lot of 
people looking for the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. But when I put money and time into organic, it's it's paid off much better. And and maybe too because especially for like local, I get hired a lot by local companies. I have yeah. obviously a much higher presence there. And Google, if someone types in CAD designer Charlotte versus just CAD designer, say Southeast yeah. or or Carolinas or North Carolina or something, just from my experience. But I want to get your opinion on that. I like local stuff too, organic stuff too. So if you're thinking about their, my maid company, Scott, everything there is organic SEO. Someone searches for maid service NYC, home cleaning NYC, we're top three. When we do Google ads or Facebook ads for our maid service, it just doesn't work. The CPA or the CAC, a cost of acquisition is way too high. So we invest everything into organic stuff, SEO, guest posting, connecting with local bloggers. That gives us a better return. So it makes sense. And for you, it makes sense like Cat Design, Charlotte, if you're doing organic or trap Google ads for that, at least bid for the, that modifier with that local keyword, because that will give you a better qualified traffic. I recommend that if you see that working better for you. But yeah, I, I like, I like SEO. So if you guys can do it, SEO is a long-term game, but I, I really love it. I, I think it's probably one of the best channels out there. Actually. Um, yeah. I have a question for you on that. Okay. So I hired, a, this guy found me, he's from India. He found me, I think on LinkedIn a long, like a year ago. And I basically said, listen, I think you knew what you're talking about. Your credentials are good. And your cost is very reasonable. It's only like $300 a month. That's it. But yeah. I was like, I don't need, I, I really don't need the service. Like I'm getting enough work, but I'll keep your information. And then like, I don't know if it was COVID or something else, but the last six months have been really slow. So I was like, okay, I hired him. I only pay month to month, so I can stop anytime. But yeah. I'm also smart enough or, or know enough about it. And I'm sure you can confirm that basically if you don't invest, if you don't spend this enough time, you won't see the reach from, from, SEO yep. from organic because it's a long-term game. And I mean, as far as number of visitors to my month, it's tripled since I hired the guy. I went oh, from 500 good, yeah. average to 1500 and I've gotten a few more calls and leads lately than I've gotten. So, I mean, it seems to be working. I think SEO is probably one of the best investments that anybody can do. And it's, it's simply what you said, Scott, it's, it takes a long time. So the best time to start it is now and to get the rewards like six, seven months from now, my maid company is purely built on SEO. My, luggage company, we're getting about 60,000 visitors a month purely on SEO too. And that took over a year to get. It doesn't need to be expensive. You can just get somebody that's pretty good and they could just keep doing it monthly for you. So yeah, I love SEO. I think it's a great, and if people want to learn SEO, um, SEO mods, I think it's called mods.com. It's a good blog to sort of read about SEO and then just keeping up with like search engine land or search engine news. Uh, there's two blogs to keep up with like stuff that's going on. So every few months, I mean, there's a Google update and you just kind of know what basically Google puts out an article about what they've updated. So you can see how do you update your website and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe that's, I'm curious because, because I started this business in like 2016, I think at least full time. I did do more like blog posts and stuff back then, but now I do a podcast. So I've kind of like substituted the blog posts I used to do for a podcast because I just don't time to do everything. Yeah. But I still update my website with content. Yeah. I don't know how much of it matters that it's audio versus like I have like a description in there, but like the, the blog post will be more words than a podcast post because a podcast is like the audio box, you know? Yeah. Like, does the blog post matter more for the organic reach and like do a better job for me? Cause it has more words in it mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm trying to figure out why I dropped off or is it these Google mods? Maybe just over time. Like, yeah, it's the right things in there. Like I'm trying to confuse cause like, like I said, I didn't for years. I didn't need any yes, SEO yeah. work by another company. I, like I did my own updates to the website, and everything seemed to be going along good. And then all of a sudden, it kind of slowly declined to where it almost got to zero. Yeah, it's like I was scratching my head over why. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, it's so funny because that's kind of like SEO is like interesting because it could be working. And then when you stop working on it, it kind of just like flatlines and goes to zero because you got to keep updating it and you got to keep adding fresh content. You got to add fresh articles to it. You have to update old articles to it. But really the big thing about SEO is you need a constant like inbound links from people talking about your website. So inbound links still help you rank. And if you have your podcast, that's great. The audio transcriptions are, are working perfectly fine. I don't, I don't even do that for my podcast. But I just do new blog posts. I do two or three new blog posts a week, uh, sorry, a month on my, on my websites. But that's how I think about it. For SEO, definitely new backlinks, super important. You should be getting that monthly or, or even so every So how months. do you get backlinks? Yeah, so if you're getting backlinks, the way we do it is we just do kind of guest posting and outreach. So we basically have a system. Someone works here that just emails other bloggers uh, just, hey, like I'm interested in writing a blog post about whatever topic you potentially can talk about. And then you, you hire a blogger. Okay. Okay. So I have a question on this because I get this all the time and I sort of stop responding to these guys. They email me and they're like, we'll write a guest post about yeah. whatever. And sometimes it's really relevant. Sometimes it's borderline not relevant. Yeah. Other times it's just straight up not relevant at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That happens and a lot. Yeah. I'm like, I guess I'll take it because it's another blog post, but. Yeah. Is it really helping me at all? A few things there. If it's not relevant to your stuff, then I wouldn't do it because that no, can actually I can actually. No, I only do it if it's at least semi relevant. Yeah. But is it helping me putting up these guest blog posts or is it really? It does. Helpful? Yeah, it definitely does. So basically, I would say here, Scott, if you're getting these blog posts, make sure that at least someone from your team interlinks to another article on your website. Let's say they sent you a Word document. Sometimes these bloggers or guest bloggers, they just. A link to their stuff. But really what you want to go in is go in and edit and add two or three internal links to either a product oh, page. So add a link from this yep. post to another post on my own website. Yep. That's Oh, I could do that in my own website anyways. If I wrote a blog post, I could link to other blog posts I wrote. Exactly. And that's key. So you want to oh. be doing at least two to three of those. Yep. So Google doesn't care that it's under the same root domain. They still count that as a backlink. Exactly. Yep. In your That's internal so weird link. because couldn't people, isn't this called like link stuffing or something where people just like just link over and over and over again to their own things. So basically if it's in your own internal website, it's fine. It's only when it's external, other people linking to your stuff. That's when it becomes more of an issue internally. You could still link the keywords that you want and then you're not going to get penalized as like, uh, let's say you have like a thousand backlinks that makes you red for like CAD design, which is your exact anchor match. Right. That's, uh, that's okay. a different algorithm for your internal website. You have a lot more control because like you're saying, Hey, no, this is like a CAD design article. I'm going to talk about it. And it's more common because you know that it's going to be your stuff and you can control it. Whereas an external Google says, Hey, we know you're manipulating because that's how the algorithm works. What about getting this guest post guy? I told one of them, I said, I'll post this if you link my website from your website. Cause I feel like that's important, right? Because yeah, if somebody goes in to their website, like getting a link back to mine just gives way more eyeballs on it. Yeah. Not to mention all the Google benefits. If you can, I would definitely do that. Yeah. You know, you're getting this out of me. I get this out of you. It's a fair trade. Yeah, I would do that. I've done that before and it works really well. So just give it a shot. It makes sense. Like, Hey, someone's linked to you. They should talk about you. And it only becomes an issue when you're just like, make sure you use the exact anchor link and you can say, Hey, just put something natural, right? Like, Hey, check out this article here. You know, Hey, check out Scott's blog. Right. Just as long as it's natural, it's fine. It becomes yeah. an issue when you're just kind of like, make sure that you say like this exact keyword, right? Blah, blah, blah. I think someone else had a question in the chat. What do you think about Nextdoor, Thumbtack or Home Advisor? So for the made company, I used, we use a lot of Yelp, which is kind of like a Home Advisor. 
or a thumbtack in a way. So thumbtack, we use that for the made company very early on in the beginning. So thumbtack, we use it a lot. So there's a few things I didn't like about thumbtack and a few things I did like about it. One, you got tons of leads. So thumbtack is a big SEO player. They rank for almost everything in like anything in the home services space. One thing that sucked about them is that you would pay per request. I forgot how much it was. I don't know, maybe between eight to $10 a request and you would pay for it even if you didn't get the job. So basically you're answering requests all day long and you could spend a hundred bucks and only get one. So your cost was maybe a hundred bucks. So that kind of sucked, but basically in the beginning, that's kind of what you need to do to get the initial listing up, to get your bookings up to your customers. So that's something to be thinking about. And remember that, but you have to think about the business model. The business model of Thumbtack isn't to get you quality leads. It's to get you to answer requests because any request that you answer, they make money. So sometimes we thought the leads would not be good, but they would send it to us because they knew that we need to respond and then it would cost us money. Next door, I haven't used it as like an advertising platform, but I've used it as like just a general platform. Honestly, I think it's great because you can have your friend join next door and be like, Hey, is anybody looking for a cleaning company? And then you'd be like, this is the company I recommend. And it's like your company, right? So you can do that for anything. Home advisor, having to use that. But then going back to Yelp, we use Yelp for the reviews. I think it's a big review platform. So you gotta be on it. It's kind of those things where you kind of just have to be on it, at least in the coastal New York city, everybody uses Yelp. We've also used their advertising platform. I don't really like the Yelp advertising platform at all. Similar to Thumbtack, you only pay per click or per call you don't ever know what converts or not. So Yelp will constantly tell you, Hey, this is working because you're spending money, but you as a business owner, there is no way to track what's converting or not converting. And as a marketer, that sucks. I'm spending a thousand dollars a month. What's working or not. But Yelp will be like, Hey, look, you got like 20 leads. What does that lead mean? I mean, is it a sale? Like we were always told Yelp, like, Hey, like you're a big tech company. How come you don't have a conversion tracking at all? And they're like, no, it's part of the roadmap or no, we don't do that. Every company, that has a great advertising platform wants to know the conversions in order to justify the cost. But Yelp somehow doesn't want to do that because I think that the advertising platform is really bad and they know it doesn't work. So anyways, that's my, my thoughts. Yeah. Kevin, I use a um, thumbtack a lot. Actually, I was responding to a customer. Yeah. I, I, think, I think, I think, I think it's like that, right? I remember I haven't used it in a while, but you pay per request or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. I pay like $5 every time someone contacts me or mm. it varies like between five and yeah. 20, but it's usually closer to five, which is good because yeah. There's a, my, the guy I hired from my website, yeah. he told me that it cost him like $50 a lead. It's like insane. Cause it used to be, you go, you chose it. Now you have to have it on automated response and you set a budget. If your budget's a hundred dollars, it's two leads a week and that's it. You know, you're out. I'm an expert in certain areas, not others. And so if it's like home plans and stuff, I don't generally do that type of work. And so I yeah. can't, I don't want to respond to those. How do you handle a situation where you're bidding on a job with somebody else? Like, what would you say to the customer? Like this one guy says, I'm considering your quote, but I'm considering a different offer. I try to do the value proposition, right? Like yeah. I've got 20 years of experience doing this design. Like I build things myself. Like I know how to make it work. Like I try to do that. I'm not trying to compete on price necessarily. No, you, know? uh, yeah, you gotta be uh, in the ballpark range, yeah. which I, which I know I'm usually at. Cause I, I've seen other quotes from projects, you know, that I've done, but. I feel like you got to try to do your elevator pitch a little yeah. bit when you get a text like that. That's what you have to do. Like same thing for the made companies. We wouldn't be the cheapest, but we would say, Hey, look, we use employees. We started out in New York city. We're not like a big corporation, like, like maids.com. You always mention competitors. You can say we're a small business owned. You say, Hey, like we pay people a fair wage. You kind of like tell people like, Hey, this is why you should work with us. Right. And yeah, that's so kind of why you have to do it. Yeah. 
So when someone says they're considering you and somebody else, you basically just, instead of saying just, okay, or I'll wait on you, you kind of add that in because it, yeah. it improves your odds. Yeah, it improves your odds. I would say like for you, it's just have like a list, a template, and just say, hey, here's why customers choose us. We have over 100 reviews on this platform. We have 20 reviews here. We're small business owned. I can make a longer list. I usually just say something like I've got 20 years experience. I had the most reviews on this website, which actually yeah, is not just a lot. like you know, just make it just yeah. like I said. It, it's if they're competing on price, you have to brag about yourself. I think most people just don't want to brag. You have to say like, this is why we're the best. Look, we have this this project. Our projects have given people X awards. Oh wow, I'm working with somebody experience. It never hurts when someone says, oh, I'm considering somebody else. Tell them. Well, thanks, Kevin, for your time, everybody. I've Try to do this in January, so yeah. we'll call this the January meeting, even though it's technically February. <laughs> I'll try to do another one in like say two weeks. Perfect, guys. And, Thank uh, you so much for joining. Hope that was helpful. If you guys want to contact me, it's just Kevin at Media. Happy to help. All right, we'll see everyone next time. This week's episode of Digital Marketing Fastlane was brought to you by the performance marketing experts at Voy Media. Join us again next time as we'll be bringing you more tips, techniques, and know-how to make your online business the very best that it can be. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, we'd love to hear them on Twitter at Voy Media. Thank you.